This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's continue our look around the country and talk to a teachers union representative, in fact, the president of the Nova Scotia Teachers Union, about how things are going in that province. Paul Wozni sat down with us earlier today, and Paul let us know how things are going in Nova Scotia. Well, for us, uh, you know, our my members in Nova Scotia experienced what uh, Ontario teachers are experiencing now, uh, namely, uh, you know, a government that inten- used the legislature as a, as a club, uh, to to force things on teachers rather than negotiating good faith, use the power to, to force terms on teachers that uh, took away their rights, uh, complicated their lives in the classroom, um, and the follow from that is we're we're still kind of digging out from that. Um, we're we're currently in a round of collective bargaining with our government and. Uh, you know, for a while it was going well, and we've we've hit some snags because the government has started to behave the way that it did in the early stages of bargaining last time. So, um, you know, I think with teachers across Canada, it, it's certainly not governments doing what they're what, what Doug Ford is doing in Ontario. We've seen it in Nova Scotia. It's happening to teachers in Alberta right now. Uh, it's happening to teachers in Manitoba. Happening to teachers in, in British Columbia and Quebec. Um, you know, teachers are, are across Canada are asking governments to make the make the necessary investments and, and to fund public education in such a way that kids get the supports that they need. I mean, the themes across Canada are universal. Uh, there's a need for inclusive education to be funded in such a way that kids that have complex needs get the supports that they need when they need them. Um, you know, we don't need talking points dedicated to inclusion. We need funding and resources dedicated to that. Uh, you know, the complexities of the modern classroom with the, sort of the explosion of mental health issues that we see in youth and the lack of services for, for young people is uh, is really, it's put an, an enormous strain on how teachers do their work and, and how they can support their classes and, and individual students. And then we've got growing issues with, uh, with classroom violence. As kids don't find the help that they need, uh, through systems connected to public education, um, we're seeing more and more kids uh, sort of th- their frustrations acted out in a way that's uh, physically aggressive, whether they ever be to hurt anybody or not. Uh, a rising number of teachers are victims of violence in the classroom, and um, all those things kind of weave together. So, are, are not better. Our, our premier would tell you that they are, but uh, we really haven't seen much change in the last six years, and. Uh, we're working really hard right now to avoid the kind of uh, conflict that the teachers in Ontario have with Doug Ford. We are talking with Paul Wozniak, president of the Nova Scotia Teachers Union. So, Paul, we've seen in Ontario, as you're well aware, one-day strikes by different boards. What kinds of strategies have you been using to try and and get through what you're dealing with? Well, for us, it's really been about trying to build a relationship that was completely, you know, broken and burned to the ground. Uh, there was no procedural trust. Uh, you know, our government had used the same kind of talking points that you hear Doug Ford using, you know, teachers and their unions are, you know, they're out of touch with one another and it's impossible to do good things in public education. All the while making drastic changes to uh, the support and the resources that teachers need in the classroom. 
speaking up and saying, hey, you know, we need we don't need more taken away. We need more invested. So really, we, we've had to work very hard at trying to be able to find ways to talk to um, key people in government uh, to demonstrate that, you know, we're solutions focused. Uh, parents and, you know, people of, of provinces want to see government in unions as the key players in public education make things better for students, not fight all the time. And we, we you know, that was a message we heard last clear. So we're, we work really hard at that. I mean, I think it's remarkable what teachers in Ontario have in terms of uh, the backing of parents. You know, two Ontarians to one support teachers over Doug Ford right now. So, um, you know, teachers in Ontario are in a bit of a different spot than we are, but um, relationship is key. And the problem is, is when you have a government that only wants to talk through the media, uh, when you have a government that wants to say one thing in the press and then turn around and do the opposite, uh, you know, in terms of funding uh, and, and, and working with teachers, um, it makes it extremely difficult for public education to improve. And teachers are tired of fighting. They just want to help kids thrive. And uh, when you've got a government bent on ruining or ending teachers' unions and, and getting its way fiscally, uh, it makes that job very difficult. So, Paul, would you say that you don't see the same kind of support for teachers in Nova Scotia by the numbers? I think we, I think we do. I mean, we're we're not in a in a cycle of job action where you know we are we're, you know we need parents to kind of help us lobby the government to to pressure for a a free and fair collective agreement. We're we're kind of not where teachers in Ontario are, but um, you know I would say teachers in in Ontario who have really been leaders um, in engaging communities and parents in and out of collective bargaining cycles. Uh, you know, all of the teachers unions in Ontario are seen to be champions for, for children and families um, on any number of issues. It's not just public education. You see teachers at the at the vanguard of, uh, of voices that are calling for solutions to child poverty and mental health on all kinds of social justice issues. So parents know that the teachers have put their, their money where their mouth is in terms of action to raise in the public school. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's a lesson we've really drawn on uh, in, in, over the last two years in Nova Scotia to, to position ourselves tangibly and, and also visibly as people that are on side with parents and first and foremost concerned with what's best for students. Paul Wozniak joining us, president of the Nova Scotia Teachers Union. Paul, as, as one final thing, and thank you so much for kind of that, that sweeping approach in, in following all that you do of what's going on across the country and kind of looking at it from a really broad perspective. When you look at, at going forward, what would it be that is going to change things? Is there a magic wand that you could wave or is it just not a, a reality to think that way anymore? No, I mean, I, I think there's really a larger political shift uh, happening in Canada. We saw it in this last federal election. Um, you know, there's a there's a brand of politics that sort of appeals to sort of the basest, ugly emotions and, and feelings and opinions of, of Canadians. And I think if Canadians want governments that are going to take a measured approach, a responsible approach, a respectful approach, they're going to have to vote for people that exemplify that kind of leadership. Uh, you can't just vote for somebody because two or three, you know, two of their top ten talking are things that I really, really like. We're really going to have to engage as citizens and make sure that we are electing people who have the tools and the track record of of, of building consensus and finding ways forward that everybody feels good about. Uh, because right now, electing governments in reaction to politics that we dislike 
uh, we find ourselves in a hard way in, in provinces where voters have gone that way. And again, I, I point specifically to you know Nova Scotia when we ejected Daryl Dexter in the NDP government, uh, despite a very solid fiscal record. Uh, you know Ontario when we got rid of the Liberals, and, and now you've got Doug Ford in Alberta where they where they turfed Rachel Notley, who'd done a tremendous job on so many fronts to go with Jason Kenney. That kind of reactive politics means that you have people that have majority governments and a license to do whatever they want, and they're not accountable between. So engaging all the time and making sure that we do our homework as citizens and elect people that reflect the not only the, the ideas, but the approach that we value and need uh, from government as leaders, those, those are keys for me. Paul, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, and uh, solidarity to all the teachers and parents and students that are fighting uh, the, the cuts made by Doug Ford's government and uh, hoping for the best for you all. Danny Fauche celebrates Australia Day as an expat from Australia each and every year with a number of people who are in the same position as she is, having been born in Australia or even born in New Zealand. And we had a chance to talk with Danny about how Australia Day is celebrated. Well, uh, in many different ways. Uh, it is um, a, a day of coming together, same as Canada Day. People, it's, it's summer for us. It's also the very last week of the school holidays before kids go back to school and start the new year. Um, so there's barbecues, people go to the beach, there's a fair bit of cricket, um, anything. Uh, and there's also, it's a, it is somewhat controversial as well. There's a, a debate happening at the moment whether we even change the date or not to be more reflective of uh, all Australians. So it, it is a big day of celebration, but also controversial. So why is there a move to change the date? Uh, there is uh, some definitely rumblings there um, because it is also known as Invasion Day or National Day of Mourning or Survival Day by the Indigenous people because it is celebrating the, the day 26 January is the planting of the flag of Great Britain, Sydney Cove. So it is reflecting Australia as we are and all the people we have from around the world like Canada, people from everywhere, um, including our Indigenous people. Um, it's not really reflective of a great time of year for them and, and, and a whole change of their history. So if we have our maybe, the thought is maybe if we have the big day uh, and do all our stuff and celebrating who we are and who we want to be, but maybe on a day that doesn't have that significance. And a lot of people also don't like change and they're very happy with their 26th January too. 26th of January is coming up this Sunday, and we'll talk about some of the things that are happening. We're also going to talk about what is happening in Australia right now with the fires that have been ravaging countryside and animals and even threatening some towns and cities at times. So we'll get to that in just a moment. We're talking with Danny Fauche, mm -hmm. part of Aussies and Kiwis in London. So being so far away from home, what is this like for someone from Australia to be able to get together and celebrate it in London, Ontario? It is really good. There's a whole bunch of expats here. And because of the universities, we have a constant stream and flux of Aussies and Kiwis drifting in. Um, so uh, we're pretty casual. We don't tend to do anything too formal. We save the formalities for our Anzac Day and 
in uh, April, um, which is like a Remembrance Day. So uh, we usually go to the pub and things, but it's a day of connecting and um, and for our kids who are surrounded by Canadiana and Canadian accents, they get to hear people speak funny like their parents. <laughs> and, uh, you know, swap clothes and things and things Australiana on it and books. And it's, it's just nice to uh, to touch base. Well, you're having an event at the Palisade, actually, this year, and you've got a little something extra to it in that you are trying to help out for what is happening in Australia right now. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, yeah, so there's a, a whole group of people who've got together for the an, a bushfire relief benefit concert from 5 o'clock at Palisade Social Bowl, and that's the north one on Adelaide Street. There are a whole pile of musicians coming together in... Um, all donating their time where uh, donations at the door. There's an excellent silent auction. All monies are going to uh, to um, uh, uh, well-regarded um, charities, the National Bushfire Disaster Appeal, which means the money can go wherever it's needed, and the South Australia Veterinary Emergency Management um, for vet supplies and things for um, Adelaide Hills and Kangaroo Island. So it's looking to be a really big night, and uh, everyone's pretty excited about it. Yeah, the lineup that you have, the number of performers is pretty amazing. Could this be for anybody to go to? Absolutely. Anyone can go to show your support. Um, We'd really appreciate it. For those who can't make it, if you go to the Australia Bushfire Relief Benefit Concert or give that a Google, you'll find it on Facebook, um, there's a, a, a donation page. You can see exactly which charities are, um, are being supported, and you can make a donation online too. So anything is uh, is welcome and appreciated. Um, yeah, it's because it's just beyond catastrophic, and it's wonderful to see people as far away as Canada uh, doing amazing things to help out. What is it like to because you know you turn on a a news broadcast or you go online and it really doesn't take very long until Australia is right there in front of you. For someone looking back at Australia, looking back at where you come from, what has that been like to deal with? It's really hard. I feel a long, long way away. Um, I grew up in the country as well with a, on a farm surrounded by bush, dense bush. I've seen bushfires come through the trees across towards our house and we've been evacuated out. Um, so I've seen that as a kid. Um, I was a, a tour guide on Kangaroo Island, so I know it really, really well. And to know that all the amazing places are just gone. Um, uh, and uh, in fact, I took my family back uh, two years ago and we drove the whole coast from Sydney round through Gippsland and went to Kangaroo Island. So actually 90% of our trip that we went is all gone. So uh, it, it's just beyond... Catastrophic. I know the the impact on people, uh, the animals, and now with uh, the wonderful rain we're getting, creates its own disaster in that it's now creating sediment in all the waterways. And now the, uh, uh, anything relying on clean water is now uh, under a lot of stress and and suffocating. So you can't win, um, and it's going to be a huge undertaking to change a lot of public opinion, our, our government being rather tardy, I could say a few things about that, um, it's, it's huge. And, it's, and, and and being away from Australia for so long, I, make sure I can't vote or anything anymore either, so I don't feel I have a say. So it, it's pretty tough. 
Well, there is an Australia bushfire relief benefit concert happening as part of Australia Day, which is celebrated every year by Aussies and Kiwis who happen to be living in London, and they're having it at Palisade, the north location, and Serena Haggerty's performing, and Letters from Hawthorne, and Mockingbird Junction, and Brent Jones, and lots of great local acts, and anybody is welcome to take part in that, and Here's hoping that they do get things on track in Australia and that at least the rains that are falling now can help to extinguish some of the fires that are out there. Like you say, you you were evacuated from from your home. Was this kind of an annual threat always in Australia? Oh, it's something you you definitely live with. Um, uh, There's a a lot of education about if you're living anywhere in in the rural areas, but how to protect your home, what you should have at home, the clearance around your home, being very aware of where you live. Um, uh, and uh, so it is something you live with and you just wait for lightning and, and take action. And that's why there's so many volunteers. We realise it's a, a community effort. We have to, you just have to help. <laughs> so, uh, and, and everyone helps. I know people, retirees uh, in their 70s, ex-librarians who still drive trucks and, and run the radios and the local CFS. So everyone helps. Um, and it's just part of what you do. Well, Danny, we really appreciate you taking some time to talk with us about Australia Day, to talk with us about what is happening in Australia, and to highlight the benefit concert coming up on Sunday. Happy Australia Day for when it arrives, and thanks so much. Thank you very much. Our resident fitness expert at Global News, Mike Arsenault, who used to play with the London Majors, had a chance to try out fat biking. Not bat fiking, fat biking. I don't, I don't know anymore. Uh, I can't even picture what this means. So let's welcome Mike Arsenault to London Live. Mike, how are things? They've been good. Trying to make the best of this winter season. And you've kind of found a way to do it, and that's using something called fat biking. And uh, I don't know, my my mind is is picturing what fat biking must look like, and I'm I'm not going to describe what my mind is doing now. Maybe you should describe what fat biking actually is first. That would be less dangerous. Sure. Well, it definitely does not refer to waist circumference, if that's where your mind was going. But what fat biking refers to is the size of the tire. Because obviously, to try and bike on a normal mountain bike or even a road bike over snow or sand would be pretty much impossible. So what fat bike has is a tire three to four times the size of a normal bike tire with very low tire pressure. So Tom Brady would like the fat tire bikes for sure. <laughs> so this is the equivalent of, of kind of a winter tire for, for bicycles? Basically, so it kind of allows you to float over unstable terrain like snow and sand. So it makes it for an enjoyable experience because if, if you took your regular mountain bike on sand, you'd be stuck pretty quickly. Yeah. Now, biking on snow and sand sounds really hard. You've attempted this. What did you find? Well, are, are you a big bike rider at all, Mike? I own one. Okay. <laughs> so you, you've, you've been on it in the last couple of years? Yes, definitely. Okay, so- so generally, when you when you go on a road bike or a mountain bike and you and you come across a hill, like most people, I'm a guy who likes to get up out of the saddle and really hammer down on the pedals. When I try to do that on the fat bike, 
that doesn't work at all. So you kind of have to think of the mantra, smooth is fast. You have to make sure that the balance is centered. Otherwise, you're going to skid out. So when I was approaching a hill, especially in more kind of unstable snow or less groomed snow, I would pretty much wipe out or skid out. So you have to kind of really use your gears on a fat bike and take a slow, steady pace. So think more of being the tortoise rather than the hare. Gotcha. Global News reporter Mike Arsenault, former London major, joining us on London Live as we talk about fat biking. So you've done this in snow. Now I'm thinking with snow also comes ice. Is there ever a moment where you're looking and thinking, it does? I could have seven feet or seven foot wide tires right now. I'm going down. That's ice. Uh, definitely, yeah. That was uh, part part of the concern when I actually tried this. And, and really, I mean, the series that I'm doing, it's called Fitness Serve Cold. But this week, I guess it's more Fitness Serve Relatively Mild. But that is the concern when the snow does start to kind of start to uh, melt a little bit, and you get encountered with that ice. It is uh, a bit of a hairy experience. But with the thicker tires and the lower tire pressure, they also have some treads on there as well. So as long as if you're a beginner, and this is a great activity for really any fitness level, you just have to just think of where you're going to go. Just think of more kind of groomed trails uh, and kind of stay away from those inclines if you're a, a complete beginner. But uh, they do have the treads there. And really just kind of go at your own pace. And as you get a higher comfort level with fat biking, you can really start pushing the pace if you want. But it's a great way because, Mike, I'm the kind of guy, I, I love the, the summer sports, tennis, baseball. I live for being outdoors in the spring and summer. But I started thinking with this series, well, a lot of people just try and bypass winter completely. But why not enjoy the great outdoors in winter with some different different winter, uh, winter fitness activities? Good stuff. I love it. Okay, so when you're looking for groomed trails, how difficult do you find that they are to, you know, locate? Well, I was up at the Horseshoe Resort for, for the, the shoot for the fat tire biking. So they actually had uh, fat tire trails set up. So there was a mixture of kind of groomed trails as well as more off-roading. But pretty much like conditions right now would probably be great for it because any of the snow that we had over the weekend, of course, is all kind of like finally packed down and it's uh, a bit of a melt-on. And of course, we're going to get rain this weekend as well. So it's pretty good conditions right now. But just... Um, just kind of, if you want to try it, just start with something a little bit easier before you really kind of take it into the woods and kind of go off go off roading, if you will. Fantastic. So, there's, as far as finding a fat bike, this is not something that you necessarily invest in, is it? Or, or could you put fat tires on a regular bike? I uh, no, you can't put fat tires in a regular bike. You would need a specific fat bike frame. The, the handlebars are a little bit wider on a fat bike as well, so that makes it a little bit easier to navigate. But in terms of cost, they're actually uh, cheaper than what you would find in a typical road bike. I believe if you want to grab a fat bike, they're probably anywhere between a, a good fat bike between a thousand and twelve hundred bucks. But if you're looking at a good mountain bike or road bike, you're probably looking at double that. But there are facilities across southern Ontario. Um, especially down in southwestern Ontario, where you can rent fat bikes and kind of go on trails. Or, again, you can, if you want to invest in it, you can try yourself and, uh, and, and, make, and make any parts of southwestern Ontario your oyster in terms of finding fat bike conditions and trails. The name definitely draws attention, Mike. Thank you for describing it. Thank you for doing it and telling us about it. All the best on the trails. Thanks. We'll talk to you soon, Mike. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.